Well, as you've already heard this morning, one of the confessions of every Orthodox Christian church, and really of every Orthodox Christian, about the nature and essence of God is that God is three persons. God is, hear the word is, Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. And not only that, but those three persons are all equally and fully God. In other words, not one of them is more or less God than either of the other two. And then, and here comes the kicker, okay? You ready? Though he is three persons, he's one God. And please don't ask me to explain that, okay? I, I can't do that for you, at least not completely. Now, what I could do is I could give you all kinds of references and all kinds of books, and we could take all kinds of time together to begin to unpack all that the church has uncovered by the power of the Holy Spirit about this particular doctrine that is central to who we are and to what we believe as a people and that we already confessed, I hope sincerely, this morning, and it would be really helpful to you. It would help you better understand the nature of God, the essence of God, the being of God, and even it would help you to more revere and better worship the Lord God. It would be a very beneficial journey, but here's what it wouldn't do. It would not exhaust God. At some point, it would come up short of the whole of Him. And I could give you helpful analogies. There are a couple of them that I think are really sort of helpful, you know, where you can go, okay, three persons, one God, that's kind of Tom, like this human relationship here, isn't it? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's helpful. All right, well, three persons, one God, that's sort of like the way that this particular element, you know, in our physical world can be represented or act or behaved. Is is it kind of like that? Yeah, it's kind of like that. Is that helpful? Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. But it's only kind of like it. There's nothing exactly like, there's no one exactly like God. See, every analogy at some point fails. I mean, they're helpful, but then you kind of run out of runway on the whole deal. And I don't want you to be bothered by that. I want you to think about that with me for a minute. And I'll just use myself as an example. Think about this. God is limitless. We'll start there. I'm limited. I mean, really limited. Severely limited. I'm limited in time. I'm limited in energy. I'm limited in ability. Don't tell my kids, but I'm limited in intelligence. I really don't know everything. I can only be in one place at one time. I mean, I'm limited. And then on top of that, by sin, all of my faculties have been affected by sin. Not some of them, not most of them, every one of them. How in the world then can I, as a limited being, reasonably expect to be able to fully explore and comprehensively understand, much less than to explain, the limitless being who is God? Doesn't work, does it? God is immeasurable. I'm five, nine and a half for the record. And when you're under six feet and you're a guy, the half matters, it's worth mentioning. So I throw it in there. When you're like six, two and a half, you're comfortable, you know, you're confident, you're comfortable. If somebody asks you, you're like, ah, six, two, no big deal. I'm five, nine and a half. I have very real dimensions. I weigh a certain amount. I wear a certain size clothes. I am in every sense measurable. God immeasurable. So then how can one who is so easily measured as I ever think that he could fully measure out the immeasurable God? That doesn't work. God is inexhaustible. I'm easily exhausted. Those of you who have tried to have an intelligent conversation with me after this service on a Sunday morning know how easily exhausted I am because the brain shuts down at the closing song. There's nothing left. It's gone. It's done. Then I have lunch and the body follows. Easily exhausted. I love to talk to you. Just don't come to me with, you know, two plus two and stuff like that. I just, I can't go there. 
God's inexhaustible. How can someone so easily exhausted exhaust the inexhaustible? Last one, and I'm done. God is infinite. I am finite. How can the finite grasp, at least entirely, the infinite? And why is it that somehow we demand of the infinite that He be made fully understandable and comprehensibly known to our itty-bitty finite minds before we can believe and trust in Him? doesn't make any sense. It's not only unbiblical, it's frankly illogical. God is too big for that, and we can't demand that or do that, but here's what we can do. We can come to the Word of God, receive it for what it is, God's Word, take what it says about things such as the nature and essence and being of Almighty God, and then confess and affirm them to be true, and then even beyond that, to live that way. And so then, when it comes to the nature and essence and being of God, what do the Scriptures teach? Well, I mean, to synopsize it, it teaches that God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that all three of those persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are equally and fully God. Not one of them is any more or any less God than any of the other. But that He's one God. He's one God. So, to import our Rio Vista language of know the Word, live the Word, what do we now know? Well, we know the Word about the essence and nature and being of God. Here's the question that I want you to ask yourself today. Do you live that Word? And here's why I want you to ask it, because I kind of struggle with it, honestly. I mean, it's been fairly penetrating for me. As I've had to work it through this week, I think that our tendency as believers is instead of living day in and day out what we profess to be true about the nature and essence of God, that is to say that He's three persons, God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit, and yet one God. The way that we live instead, day in and day out, is that, well, God is Father and God is Son, and we pay very little attention at all to the Holy Spirit. And that is tragic. And it's also kind of ironic. And I say that it's ironic because... The work of God in our lives today, the work of God in our families today, the work of God in this church, in this city, in our nation, in our world today, has been largely delegated by the Father and by the Son to the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean that, you know, Father and Son got together and said to the Spirit, hey, listen, we're going to take a vacation. We'd like you to take over. You just go ahead and do your thing. We delegate it all to you. Let us know if you need anything. They are one God. But it is to say that the Spirit is the one who primarily carries forth the will and the work of the Father and the Son in our lives, in our day, in our age. And so we need the Father, and we need the Son, and we also, and even desperately, need the Holy Spirit. I want you to consider some of the things, just a few, that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit does today. I mean, it's overwhelming. So, for example, number one, I just wrote down categories. The Spirit is the one who gives life. And that's true physically. We see that in the first few pages of the Bible. He's the one who gives life, but it's true spiritually as well. Listen to what Jesus says. John 3, beginning of verse 6, He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is what? Born of the Spirit is spirit. How many of you have actually witnessed a live birth? You've seen it. Anybody? Okay, I've seen three and one on tape. And, uh, and the one on tape I saw first, and I was glad it was after my wife became pregnant, because otherwise we would have no children. It scared me half to death. <laughs> but I would ask you, you who have seen it, what is birth 
but the bringing forth of a brand new life. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, Jesus says, that I said to you, you must be born of the Spirit. Bottom line, if you're going to come to faith in Jesus Christ and be washed and made clean and made new, be brought into the family of God, if that's going to be you and you're going to receive all of the blessings of that and the eternal life of that and the abundant life of that, if that's going to happen, you first need to be born of the Spirit. You need to be made alive to this Jesus and granted the very faith by which you embrace Him. But look, here's the deal. That's not only true for you. That's true for your husband or wife. That's true for each one of your kids. That's true for everyone in your office, everyone in your school, everyone in your ball team, every relationship that you have, everyone in your neighborhood, everyone in the city, everyone in the country, and everyone in the world. We desperately, desperately need the Holy Spirit. We need for Him to come. We need for Him to work. Guys, He's the giver of the very thing we long to see happen in our families, church, city, nation, and world. So the Spirit brings life. Secondly, the Spirit brings power and all kinds of power. And this jazzes me up because I already told you I'm limited and I get exhausted. But now think about this, because the Spirit gives us power to love God. And that, as Ryan kind of said during our worship time, is sometimes something that's difficult for us particularly when we don't like the way that Almighty God is governing over the affairs of, let's just be honest, our lives. The Spirit gives us the power to love God. The Spirit gives us the power to worship God, to sing from the perspective of faith in the face of our circumstances. What God's Word says is true. The Spirit gives us the conviction of that truth. The Spirit gives power to our witness. So when we talk to our kids about God, listen, it's empty words coming out of an empty mouth unless the Spirit is involved. When we're trying to live for Christ in the midst of our office and show forth a witness to the Lord that brings forth eternal life, we're dead if we're on our own. When we as a body of Christ are seeking to stand up and through the power of the gospel transform a culture, a city, a nation, whatever you pick it, on our own, no deal. The Spirit gives power to the witness of Jesus. It gives us power to stand firm against the evil one who would seek to destroy and divide us. It gives us power, He gives us power rather, over our sin. Listen, He's called the Holy Spirit, and one of His primary operations in our lives is to make us holy. And He gives us power to serve God too. The gifts that God gives to His people, primarily by which to serve Him, by serving each other and letting that service overflow out into the community. That's why we have the talents that we have and so forth, are called the gifts of the Spirit for a reason. So the Spirit gives power. The Spirit also reveals. He comes to us and He reveals to us, for example, that we are actually God's children, that yes, Christ actually died for us, that through our faith in Him, we have, believe it or not, been forgiven of the whole bunch of our sin. All of it. It takes the power of God to convince us of that. Doesn't it? You mean that thing? Yeah. And all that? Yeah. And the thing that nobody knows about? Yeah. All of it. 
That is a beautiful revelation. He reveals God's presence to us. As we come to Him in personal worship and, and, and as we read and study His Word, when we sense and feel the presence of God, that is the God's Spirit ministering to our hearts. And when we don't, who do we need? When we gather together, if we sense the presence of God, that's the Holy Spirit. What a great, great gift. And He reveals God's will to us. The Holy Spirit Himself is our guide And how does He guide us? He guides us through His Word. And He guides us even through the desires of our own heart as He molds and shapes us and fills us day by day by day, giving us the very desires that He then grants as He lifts our prayers before the Father. So the Spirit reveals, the Spirit unifies. On our own, we fall apart. I don't know if you've noticed that. On our own, we become factious. On our own, we become contentious. On our own, we are divided. In the Spirit, we are unified. So unity in a marriage, unity in a family, unity in a church, unity in a city, unity in a nation, unity in a world, that's something only God can do. That is the work of God's Spirit. Lastly, the Spirit dispenses the blessings of God. So, for example, God is a God of love. The Spirit communicates His love to you. God is a God of peace. He imparts God's peace. God is a God of joy. There is joy in the presence of the Lord. Well, when we sense the presence of the Lord, it's the Spirit who's communicating joy, truth, wisdom, revelation, freedom, glory, all that is the Lord God that is communicated to us, communicated in this day and age by the Spirit. And so I think we know the Word about God. He's Father and He's Son and He's Holy Spirit, but I question sometimes whether we live it, and so I want to take aim at that. And I want to take aim at it, not because it's like a personal hobby horse of mine or anything, but simply because that's the next topic that Jesus addresses as we return today to our study of what He says to His guys on the night that He's betrayed. It's His last night. It's His last message, and what He does, as we'll see now, is He begins to focus them and us on the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says this, John 16, beginning in verse 4. It's the second part of verse 4. It's kind of an odd place to pick it up. But, but he says this, he says, I did not say these things to you. He's talking to his disciples from the beginning, meaning when you guys first joined me and I called you to follow me. And here's why I didn't say these things to you from the beginning. Well, because I was with you. Now, if you missed last week, you're going, I don't know what this is all about right out of the gate. So let me reverse for a second and explain what these things are that Jesus did not share with them from the very beginning because you know what? He didn't have to. He was with them. But now that he is going to die, he is going to be buried. He is going to rise. He is going to ascend to the Father to resume heaven's throne. And he's not going to be with them anymore. Okay, now he needs to tell them. Do you remember what it was? Last week, he came to them and us. And he said, let me tell you guys what kind of a reception you need to expect from the world. As my spirit fills you, as you bring forth the fruit of my life, as you go forth preaching my gospel. And what kind of a reception was that? The answer is it's the same kind of reception that Jesus received. Okay, so then 
What happened with him? Well, I mean, what happened with him is some people responded very positively to his message, to his ministry, to his life, and they loved Christ, and they gave themselves to him fully, entirely, completely. They gathered everything up, and they said, that's it, I'm in on this guy, and they leveraged their life for him, and they experienced in their lives and in eternity, the abundant and eternal life that is found nowhere else other than Jesus Christ. They're forgiven, they're washed, all of these different things. That's what happened with some folks, but most rejected him. And that crowd slandered him, misrepresented him, betrayed him, falsely accused, charged, tried, and convicted him, abused, tortured, and crucified him. And why is that exactly? Well, he told us last week, I mean, first of all, it's because they didn't know the Father that they professed to know, because if they'd known the Father, they would have recognized his Son when he came. But their rejection of him proved that they didn't know the Father. And then also, and very significantly, because the life of Jesus Christ is a life that exposes you and I and everyone else for who and what we really are. And we developed that last week. You know, the Bible comes to us, and it doesn't call us to compare ourselves with ourselves. That's like darkness trying to shine on darkness. It it doesn't work. It's no more logical than the limited trying to, you know, fully comprehend the limitless. It's nonsensical in some sense. But the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ, came into the world living a life of perfect holiness and preaching a gospel of perfect righteousness and also mercy and forgiveness and freedom from judgment and so on and so forth. And look, here's the deal. When you see yourself for who and what you really are in the light of Jesus, which exposes everything that's gone on in the darkness, literally and metaphorically. It's traumatic. And you have a choice. The choice is you can own it and acknowledge it to be true and rush to the one who not only exposes you, but he exposes you that he might heal you, that he might cleanse you, that he might take all that is fractured in you and make you whole and grant you the life that you're looking for and everything else. That's option A. Or option B is you reject and slander and misrepresent and misunderstand the light. You run from it. It's painful. Jesus says, look, in my lifetime, look at what happened, guys. Some guys, option A. Most, option B. I didn't really need to tell you all this while I was with you, but now that I'm going to leave and I'm going to send forth the Holy Spirit, and He, through you, is going to take my same revealing life, and He is going to produce the fruit and the message of it, you guys need to know in advance that sometimes you're going to have some tough days. And sometimes you're going to face some resistance. Every once in a while, you're going to be misrepresented and misunderstood, mischaracterized and even persecuted. Those kinds of things are happening, and I want you to know in advance, Jesus said last week, and here's why, so that when they happen, you're not discouraged, and your faith is not weakened, but rather strengthened, because you know that I foresaw it all, and just like my sufferings and death fulfilled the will of the Father, for the Father accepted the murder of His Son as the sacrifice for the sins of His people, so also will your sufferings be redeemed." so also will they be used. So also will they be good. And so Jesus gets down to the last night, and He says, all right, guys, 
Again, verse 4, second part, I did not tell you all this stuff about the kind of reception that you're going to be receiving from the world after I leave. I didn't tell you that from the beginning, and here's why, because I was with you, and I took that for you in my presence with you. But that presence is coming to an end, he says. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and I'm leaving you behind, and none of you even ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things about the fact that I'm leaving you, you're blown away. And sorrow has so filled your heart that that's all you're capable of focusing on in this moment. And then Jesus says something that is absolutely stunning. I mean, it had to blow these guys away. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. So here it comes. It is to your advantage. I know you're brokenhearted over this, but it's good. It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, what? what's the deal? The helper, who is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I'm going to send him to you. What is Jesus saying? He's sitting down with these guys and saying, all right, here's the deal. Uh, This is our last night. And beginning tonight, I'm going to suffer and then I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried and on the morning of the third day from my death and burial, well, I'm going to be raised from the dead. After I'm raised from the dead, I'm going to appear to you physically. We're going to eat together. I'm going to let you put your finger in the hole of the nail. It's going to be cool. And I mean, I'm really going to be with you. This is not some ghost... I will conquer sin and death. Shortly thereafter, I'm going to ascend and I'm going to retake the throne that I left to come here. Heaven's throne, all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, has been given by the Father to me. We do not wait for Jesus to return to set up a millennial kingdom, and that's when he's going to reign. He reigns on the throne now and today. And what he's saying to these guys is, listen, when I get there, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and He's going to come on this day called Pentecost. And that is going to validate the fact that, A, I've made it, and B, He is going to begin in that day, a day and an age of salvation, of the going forth of God's message, God's gospel, God's kingdom, with a power that has never before been seen. But that was foreseen by Isaiah and Joel and Ezekiel. And it's the day, he said to those guys and to us, that you're living in. And my presence and my mission and my message and my power is no longer going to be limited to my physical body and to my voice, which can only be in one place at one time, but instead by the power of the Holy Spirit who is going to fill and take up residence in you. My mission, my message, my power, my voice is going to be multiplied many, 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 many times over through the mouths and the bodies and the voices and the lives and the sacrifices of my people who then take it to the very ends of the earth. Jesus' ministry was very small geographically. How about today? It's remarkable. You know, and a really cool thing, I mean, as as I've said, we live in that day and age, and guess what? We are those people. That's us. That's me. That's you. We are a people that are not only to possess God's Spirit, but to be possessed by God's Spirit. 
in such a way that He takes us over and fills and produces the fruit of the life of Jesus, His character, His nature, His works, His message, His gospel, and takes it to the very ends of the earth. But again, what kind of life is it? It's a life that exposes, you see, and that's what makes sense, I think, in the next verse, in verse 8. Because Jesus comes to us in verse 8, and then He goes on and He says, and when He, meaning the Holy Spirit, comes, what is He going to do? Well, He will what? Because it's a very important word. It's a word we need to rightly understand. He will convict the world concerning three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if you're not careful with that little word convict, here's what's going to happen. As 21st century Americans, we hear convict, and where do we go in our minds and our imaginations? We go into a courtroom. And it's a courtroom, at least after reading that verse, that we then imagine the world is on trial. So the world's the defendant, God is the judge, the Holy Spirit through His people are the prosecutors, and what are we trying to do? We're trying to persuade or convince God to enter a conviction against, is that what this is about? It's easy to think that it is, but it's not. That's not what it's about. We're not trying to gain a conviction from God against the world. You know, we're not trying to convince God of the world's guilt. He knows all about the guilt of the world, just like He knows all about my guilt and has washed it away through Christ. The convincing and the persuading that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are seeking to do in this world is we are seeking to convince and persuade the world itself of the world's own guilt. And here's why we're seeking to do that so that we might then freely offer to the world and it might then accept the pardon from its guilt that can only come through faith in Jesus Christ, thus escaping the conviction and the judgment of God. We are not God's prosecutors. We are, however, God's preachers and not just me, all of us, every one of us. And so Jesus says, and when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then He explains. He says, concerning sin and why? Because they do not believe in Me. I want them to see their sin, Jesus is saying, so that they can see Me as their pardon and believe in Me. And be saved is the idea. Concerning righteousness, meaning the so-called righteousness of this world, there is a righteousness and we'll put it in quotes, of this world, which is no righteousness at all. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me at least in this body no longer, but here's the deal, you will see me through the work of the Holy Spirit and you 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 and through all of my people as the Holy Spirit goes to work in you, making you holy in word and in deed, and producing a righteousness that is alien to you, but is native to Jesus, His righteousness, and through the righteousness that is produced in you by the Holy Spirit, the world's false righteousness will be seen for what it really is. Concerning judgment, he says, meaning the world's mistaken judgment about who Jesus is and about what Jesus really has done. Why? Because the ruler of this world who is ever seeking to blind this world to who Jesus is and what all that he has done is himself judged in the cross of Jesus. And so then our Lord says, you know, I still have many other things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. 
Now's not the time. However, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears from me, He will speak, and He will declare it to you, the things that are to come. And then you guys are going to do cool things like write the New Testament. It's going to be neat. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And what's that? All that the Father has is mine. And therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All right, let's stop there. So what do you do with all that? Now what? I'm going to give you some ideas, but I wonder if the Spirit hasn't been saying to you, okay, here's what you're supposed to do with this. Because if He has, then, you know, write that one down. That's, that one's for you, and that's His point for you. But as I kind of think it through, I mean, I think, first of all, that we need to stop living like God is two persons in one God. Because He's not. He is Father. He is Son. He is Holy Spirit, and we need Father, and we need Son, and guys, desperately we need the Spirit, or we work in vain. And I think what that looks like, just on a practical level, first of all, is prayer. Every work of the Holy Spirit throughout the course of the history of the church, every major movement that has been affected has been affected when God's people have gone to God and asked Him to send His Spirit. We need the Spirit. We need Him in our hearts and lives. We need Him in our homes and families. We need Him in this church and city. We need Him in this nation in this world. We've endured many commercials. I change the channel usually, telling us at least ostensibly what we need these past few months. I want to put somebody on your ballot or more importantly, on your prayer list. We need the Holy Spirit more than anything or anyone else. So it looks like prayer. It looks like time in His Word. It looks like obedience to His Word. It looks like gathering and worship and taking the spiritual gifts and disciplines that He's given to us seriously, plugging into community, recognizing that we're not solo practitioners when it comes to the Christian faith, but it's meant to be lived out with one another. It's surveying our lives and our gifts and saying to ourselves, well, I've done a great job of spending this on me. Lord, how do you want me to spend this on you? It's making space for God. It is uncluttering our lives of lesser things that we might clutter our lives with the Holy Spirit Himself and how He wants to shape and guide and form us. It's time to wake up. We need the Spirit. So that's, I think, what that looks like. But then secondly, I think that we need to actively begin to participate in His ministry of convicting the world and to do it graciously and to do it humbly and to do it mercifully and to do it as those who are no better than the world as we talked about last week, but who have just been saved and given the life of the Spirit to convict the world of its sin and of its false righteousness and of its mistaken judgment about who and what Jesus Christ is. And again, why? Because we're the prosecutors of God? No, because we're His preachers. Because we're seeking a conviction against the world? No. Because our heart is to see the world come to Christ and find the pardon that alone can be found in Him. That's our motivation. So you're a preacher by the way that you live and by the words that you say. And you're to plead for the souls of the people God has placed in your world and to concern yourself for the souls of all the people in the world who by the power of the Holy Spirit, God through you, 
wants to reach. So I want to share one last thought with you, and I shared with the worship team before we started this morning. I said, you know, communication is a two-way deal. Like every married person knows this. You know, there's what you say, and then there's what's heard, right? Well, I didn't mean to say it like, you know, when I said that, I didn't mean, well, you know, it just it didn't work, did it? So, so I need to say it right, and, and you need to hear it right as it's actually meant. So that's the operation of the Spirit. You know, I want to say to you that our problems, the problems of our nation, the problems of our city, the problems of our world are not primarily political. We have political problems. Maybe you notice that. But they're not primarily political. And neither are they primarily economic. We have economic problems, but that's not the real bottom line issue. They're not even, believe it or not, primarily moral. Though we have moral problems, challenges, issues. And so then, they're not solved by elections. And that's not to say that elections aren't important. See, now that you're hearing what I'm not saying, if that's what you're hearing. But it is to place them in their proper place. The primary problem with this world is a spiritual problem. And if the problem of this world is going to be solved, it is going to be solved by the Holy Spirit as He takes up and begins to produce the fruit of the life of Jesus Christ and embolden the message of Jesus Christ through people like me and through people like you. People who do, yes, speak out. People who do, yes, graciously, far more graciously, I'm afraid, oftentimes than we do, and humbly take stands. And people who do go to the polls and who do, in fact, vote and who do, in fact, vote, by the way, as an act of worship before Almighty God in the way that you and God have concluded will be most pleasing to Him. I'm not ignoring those things. But a people who also understand that their primary allegiance is to Christ, that their primary citizenship is in heaven, and that their primary mission, and it's the only mission that's going to work ultimately is to bear the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that they live, in the way that they serve, in the way that they worship, in the way that they speak, in the way that they give, in the way that they take their lives and place them into the hands of God and say, here, use me. Humanity's ills are cured by the gospel alone. So make space for the Holy Spirit in your life. What do you need to declutter that you might clutter it with Him? What lesser things do you need to say no to that you might say yes to Him? And then go forth also and take your life before the Lord every single day and say, all right, listen, how do you want to use it today to make an eternal difference? Okay? So hopefully you heard what I actually said. I guess I'll know when I get the email. Let's pray.